Good morning, friends. How are y'all? As you can see, Chris is not standing here, so he's out of town. He had a, I want to say it's a board meeting at Virginia Seminary is where he is. Be back maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow. Um, and we have our Women of St. Michael luncheon today at 1130, and so I'm going to make sure we're going to be wrapping up by 1115. I, I don't think that's going to be an issue. Um, we should be done by then, but you just never know where the conversation is going to take you, so we'll leave it. All right, friends. Um, all right, well, we get good stuff. At least if he left me something to teach today, he left me some good stuff, right? So we get the conversion of Saul. We're in chapter 9, so if you're following along, we're going to be going through chapter 9 today. <clears throat> and it starts <clears throat> with the conversion of Saul. I apologize. I've had this cred for the last week or so, week and a half. just won't go away. Okay, so with the conversion of Saul, we begin a new section with him as the new central character. So we've kind of been going through this phase where it's been Peter and the apostles who were with Jesus. And now we're going to kind of, the focus is going to shift a little with Paul. Um, and with, with Saul as Paul, we'll see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth just as Jesus foretold. So Paul's a really big instrument in that coming, coming about. So Saul is out there, he's been breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. And he asks, he goes to the officials and he asks for authority to go to Damascus, Syria, and hunt out any Jesus believers who might be hanging out there. The way, um, which he refers to it here, he wants, to, he wants permission to get anyone who are followers of the way, right? And so the way is the name that's given to Christianity in these early days. And it kind of recalls the preaching of John the Baptist who said he was coming to prepare the way of the Lord, right? That's kind of where that goes back to. And so <clears throat> Saul has his letters and he's on his way to Damascus and he's going to really um, take it to the Jesus followers. And as he's traveling, a light flashes from heaven and a voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul asks, who is this? And the reply is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what to do. So there are several things about this encounter I want us to think about. First, I want us to note that the persecution of disciples is the persecution of Jesus, right? Um, and so we need to keep that in mind, that when we are, you know, when we're feeling persecuted, know that it's that Jesus is right there with us and Jesus is receiving the persecution and he'll be with us in the midst of that right um, and that things that we do against those who are um, honestly and, and appropriately doing things in Jesus name that in essence we're doing that against Jesus that's really good for us to keep in mind and Jesus said go and you'll be told what to do so what I want to point out here is that Saul's one of those guys who's been doing what he liked what he thought was best, what his will dictated that he would do. And um, from now on, from this point forward, he's going to be told what to do. And so, there, again, there's a discipleship message in here that we tend to like to go through life charting our own course and telling God, don't worry about me, you got your hands full, I got this. I'll just, you know, smooth my own path and just, you know, I just assume you not pay much attention to me at all and let me just get through life, right? And so... Um, we, we're reminded once again that at some point in our lives, we will, we will learn the lesson that we're not the ones in control, right? And, um, and so it's better to learn that the easier way than the hard way. So Saul gets up and he cannot see, 
So the men traveling with him lead him by the hand and they lead him into Damascus. And blindness here is symbolic of um, Saul's inability to perceive Jesus, which is part of why it came about as part of what went on. And for three days he could not see and he did not eat or drink. So we sometimes talk about people who've had a road to Damascus experience. I just heard y'all talking at the beginning of before class started and you're saying that you've got folks in your inner circle that don't aren't even familiar with the story of Paul on the road to Damascus, right? No, I'm not going to out. Yeah. Right? And it's not y'all. Y'all know it. I'm not outing y'all, right? But I but I think that it shows something, right, that we um examples from scripture that used to be commonly used to make points you can't do that anymore because people aren't familiar with scripture like they were, you know, in the 50s and 60s and stuff where we had just, we even had literary uses of biblical terms that were commonly understood by people, right? Um, so we talk about these, this road to Damascus experience, and this is what we're referring to when we talk about this. And it's an intense experience or revelation of God that in essence can change the trajectory of a person's life. And so we hear of folks who've had near-death experiences, or they've had a very serious health scare, or they've barely escaped a devastating accident, and, and in a way they were kind of shook awake, as it were, by the experience, and have vowed to approach life in a new way. They've kind of taken stock of their lives, and they've decided that changes need to be made, and that they don't want to continue to go on that the way they were. And so this is kind of what we mean when we're talking about a road to Damascus experience, right? But most of us, a lot of us never experience this. I mean, most of us are working to live a, a faithful life, kind of making our way in a sometimes meandering but overall steady trajectory toward the life we believe that we're supposed to live. And so I just want to tell you right now that none of us get bonus points for drama. There's, you know, just because you have a good story to tell about how you came to Jesus and how you changed your ways, that's lovely and it's wonderful and we all want to hear it. But that doesn't make you any closer to Jesus than those of us who are just getting up every day and putting one foot in front of the other and never have that kind of experience, but just faithfully pursue the life that we believe that God's calling us into, right? Sometimes the slow and steady faith is the one that honors God the most. So Paul's course is going to change dramatically from this point forward. He was so sure of his rightness and his righteousness he was sure that persecuting those who professed faith in Jesus was the kind of purging that honored God, that protected the faith as he knew it and received it. But God intervened dramatically to show Paul that he was wrong, that what he thought showed his serious commitment to God was in fact persecution of God. And so I think this is an important lesson for us in religious humility. And you know, we should be really wary of folks who claim to know God's mind and to speak for him, and who believe that in naming those who are in and those who are out pleases God, um, who are quite animated in their argument that they know the answers that God would give and that one need only follow their instructions and comply with their beliefs to be right with God. There is a power in being able to receive correction from God. So whether it's a, a road to Damascus experience that pulls us up short, or the messages we receive through the people in our lives, or our reflection on God's desire for us in the world, 
There is um, great power in the courage to change course, to be willing to say, hey, once I knew better, I did better. You know, I, I had to change what I said and what I believed and how I lived because I learned this, this new thing. So Paul shows us someone who was willing to be corrected. The greatest persecutor of the early church would grow on, go on to be the greatest evangelist the church has ever known, right? So it's just never too late. Don't count that brother-in-law out because it's never too late. God can speak to him and change course. <clears throat> Fill in the re relation there. <laughs> okay, so now we have the story of Ananias. Now the Lord came to Ananias, a disciple in Damascus, and the Lord said, Ananias, and he replied, Here I am, Lord. And so I'm going to repeat something that I said when I was teaching on Sunday morning a couple weeks ago, that here I am is the faithful response to God. It's a response that Abraham gives God. It's a response that Moses gives God when he first sees the burning bush and God speaks to him out of it. It's the response that Isaiah gives when he's got his vision in front of the heavenly court. And it's the um, response that Mary gives after the angel has filled her in on everything that's going to happen to her. And she says, here am I, a servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me as you have said or something you know, to that effect. Y'all can correct me on it. But that, so that, that is the faithful response, right? And so here we are. We're hearing it again from Ananias when, when God comes to him. <laughs> and, and he says, here I am. And he's ready to go, right? But we might have spoken too soon. Because as soon as Jesus tells Ananias what the plan is, you know, to go to this house where Saul is, um, he starts stepping back a little. And Saul has already seen. So we have Ananias who gets God's vision, God coming to him and saying, hey, I want you to do this thing. And at the same time, Saul is receiving a vision that says that um, a man named Ananias is going to come and lay hands on him and restore his sight. So Saul is being prepared for this thing to happen even as Ananias is receiving the message. <laughs> and so now that Ananias knows the plan, he says, Wait a minute, Jesus. <laughs> Saul, he's a really bad dude. He's been doing massively bad stuff to people just like me. And, you know, he kicks puppies, in case you didn't know. So he, Ananias is saying, I just don't want to go see him. Um, and, and as if all of that isn't enough, Ananias says, he's been given the power to arrest me and throw me in jail. And that's what he's been given. He's been given the certificate by the authorities to come and take care of these people who are followers of the way. So Ananias has been lying low. He has no desire to come into Saul's presence and open himself up to all of this. And he kind of says, you know, Jesus, I have a wife and kid. I have a mortgage. I've got a boss who will be none too pleased if I'm not at work tomorrow because I've been thrown in jail. So this is just a really bad plan. Can we rethink this? And so we can kind of relate to Ananias. We are kind of happy living a disciple's lives that we've arranged for ourselves. But our discipleship is going to be challenged. We're going to be asked to do more, to give more than we bargained for. And in the face of these new challenges, we become fearful. We become resentful. Don't make me do stuff I don't want to do. We wonder if being a faithful disciple is all that it's cracked up to be. And so we start making excuses to Jesus, right? So we're right there with Ananias. And so how does Jesus deal with our moaning and our excuse-making? As Ananias is making his way through his list of excuses, you can almost see Jesus giving him the tell it to the hand, right? And Jesus just says, go. Just as he told Abraham, just as he told Moses, just as he told Isaiah, he just says, go. 
And so what Jesus is really saying here is, you know, I'm not getting into this with you, Ananias. It's not really yours to know, but I have a plan. I have a use for this man. I have a purpose for this man. And you have a part to play in bringing about this purpose. You may not understand it. You don't have to. But you have to trust me, right? I'm the one telling you to do it. You need to trust me, and you need to step out, and you need to go. So Ananias sets out for this house where Saul is staying. And during his, the walk, his, his fear and his distrust are transformed, such that when he enters the house, he's able to lay hands upon this man and greet him with the words, Brother Saul. That's a lot of transformation on the walkover. And immediately the scales fall from Saul's eyes, and his sight is restored, and he's baptized, and he eats, and he begins to regain his strength. All right, so now we have Saul beginning his ministry. This is um, verses 19 to 31, this section. So Saul starts hanging out with the Christians in Damascus, and he begins to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. And so I want to point out that this is the first time that Son of God appears in Acts. So I want to talk a little about that. <clears throat> Son of God in the Old Testament was used in one of two ways. It was either used to refer to the whole people of Israel as, as the Son of God, as God's child, kind of. Or it was used to um, denote the Messiah that would sit on David's throne, the Messiah that they were waiting for that would sit on David's throne. So now Saul um, is is starting to teach about Jesus, and with all of his background, with all of his knowledge um, of, of Jewish scripture and the Jewish faith, he makes the connection. So he gathers up these, these meanings that we already know from the Old Testament, and he adds that the Messiah is not just a person, but it is God's own self, that God comes to us in human form, that it is God incarnate. And so from here, moving forward, this will be the understanding of the church, that Jesus is Son of God, the Messiah, God incarnate, that all of that applies to Jesus. So folks in Damascus are kind of saying, hey, <clears throat> isn't this the guy that was terrorizing all those followers of Jesus? This is kind of um, odd that now he's, he's switched to the other side. And they're infuriated by how Saul is using his knowledge of Scripture to explain how Jesus is its fulfillment. And so the Jews plot to kill Saul because he's taken their story in a way they don't want it to go. And it's kind of interesting because if you read these verses in here, there's kind of amazement at him followed by an attempt to kill him, which is very much what happened to Jesus, right? People are kind of amazed at his teaching. Where does he get his authority? Da-da-da. But then in the next minute, he's pushed them and made them so uncomfortable that then they're plotting to kill him, right? Um, but Paul finds out about the plot to take his life. And so he is um, snuck out in a basket that's lowered through an opening in the city wall, which is a pretty cool escape, actually. <laughs> and he gets out. So he gets out of Damascus, and he heads to Jerusalem. And he tries to join the disciples there. He kind of shows up at the meeting and says, you know, hey, bro, but this is Saul. He's been out persecuting people and killing followers of the way, right? So they don't believe that he's a disciple. They're scared of him. They think that he's just, you know, trying to become a double agent or something and get on the inside and find out stuff. And so here's where we get this interesting turn of Barnabas, who has solid cred with the disciples in um, Jerusalem, 
he takes Saul in. So he's willing to give Saul a chance and to listen to all of this. And I want to remind you that Barnabas, our, our story of Barnabas goes back to chapter 4, where he's the one who, after um, Sephora and Ananias make the bad example of selling things and giving the money to the church, but then acting like they'd given everything to the church and they were holding stuff back, and then, you know, poor things, they died. Boom, boom. But... Barnabas then is the story that's told after that to give you the good example of that. That Barnabas actually did sell what was his and brought and laid all of it at the feet of the church, right? So this is someone who's proven himself to the church in various ways. And he helps to convince the other Jerusalem Christians that Saul is legit. And once they start taking him in because of Barnabas, um, he begins, Saul begins preaching boldly in the area. And so Barnabas is a great example to us. He shows us um, that he believes the best in others and that he doesn't hold one's past against them. And that is a good lesson for us to, to take going forward. And so Saul is now out and he's debating the Hellenists, which are the Greek-speaking Jews. And they plotted to kill him. Everywhere he goes, there's a plot to kill him. But the believers of the word um, get, get you know, word of that this is going on. And so they bring him to Caesarea, where he can sail for his hometown, Tarsus. Um, so just so you know, Tarsus, so Saul of Tarsus, Paul of Tarsus, that's on the coast in Turkey. So that's where Paul is from. And in the letter to the Galatians, Paul tells of his successful preaching in that region. So this is what that ties to. If you read the letter to the Galatians, it ties to this story of them getting Paul out of Jerusalem when for the second time he was threatened with death, and they put him on a boat to Tarsus, and he starts um, teaching and preaching the word there, and that's where we get the church in Galatia from. And so after this, the church experiences a time of peace, and it continues to expand geographically and to grow in numbers. That's what we're told at the end of that section. Okay, and then we get to our last section of nine, which is this verses 32 to 42. And now we're shifting from Paul, who's gotten on the boat and gone off to do his adventure. Now we're back to Peter again. And so Lydda, we're, we're told that um, he goes to Lydda, that Peter's going to Lydda. Well, Lydda is located at the intersection of the road from Jerusalem to Joppa. So Joppa's on the coast. I really should do it backwards. It's Jerusalem to Joppa. So Joppa's over here on the coast, so that looks right for y'all. Um, and it's also the intersection of that road and the road that connects Egypt down here up to Babylon in the north, right? So there's major traffic here, and it's a great way to connect to outlying lands. This is a great thoroughfare um, um, between different um, peoples and regions and stuff. So people, Peter comes and he begins his ministry by healing Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years. And... Aeneas is, I mean, um, Lydda is a small town, and they know this guy, Aeneas, and he's been in bed for eight years, not able to walk. And so when Peter heals him, they are all converted. They all become believers of the way because this is amazing to them. And so I want us to note that Peter's healing in the name of Jesus um, versus versus Jesus who healed in his own authority, right? So Jesus would just say, get up, your faith has made you well, go, right? I mean, so that, that's, Jesus has that within him. Peter's taking it a step further and saying, I'm healing you in the name of Jesus. Um, and so that's clarifying because I think those who speak for Jesus and for God after a time 
can get confused about that, and they kind of start thinking they're doing it in their own power, right? And so it's really good to be reminded that none of this is happening in any of our own power. It's all happening through Jesus giving in the power. William Barclay in his, in his commentary says, we think too much of what we can do and too little of what Christ can do through us. And so it's a reminder that even things that we think are overwhelming to us and things that we don't feel that we're equipped for, that if we believe that we're being called to do it, that know that um, Christ is there helping you do whatever he's calling you into. And so um, Peter's in Lydda, he's converted the whole town, he's healed the gentleman, and they hear word of it in Joppa over on the coast. And they have a, a beloved disciple, um, Tabitha, who's also known as Dorcas, and she has fallen ill and she's died. And she's laid out in her room and mourners are all around her. And so the disciples of Joppa went to Lydda and they asked Peter to come and to, to be with Tabitha. And so he does. And he puts the mourners out of the room and he kneels and he prays at Tabitha's side. And then he says, Tabitha, get up. And she awakes and Peter helps her get up and he gives her back to her friends. And the word of that, that, of that healing, of that bringing Tabitha back to life spreads among the people in um, Joppa and more people are converted to believe in the Lord. And so I want to note a couple of things here. The healing of the man, so we have the healing of the gentleman who was bedridden for eight years, right? They, this, is, this is a pattern. So we have the healing of the man, and that's followed by the a healing of the woman. And that reflects these paired stories that you see in Luke. So as you recall, the same author of Luke is the author of Acts of the Apostles. And in both the Gospel and in Acts, you see a lot of this pairing a story of something that happens to a man to a story of something that happens to a woman. Um, and so that's just common to Luke. So look out, look for those um, when he does that. And it's notable that our passage ends with Peter staying at a tanner because a tanner is someone who would have been considered unclean under the law because of his profession. And so again, it's kind of this sign of the barrier breaking that's going on with the church and how, um, how, they have come, how followers of Jesus have come to know that God is prioritizing things in a different way than what we had done for all those years under the law. And there's all these subtle ways that they're showing that. And so Peter staying with the tanner is one of the subtle ways of doing that. So, um, so returning to our, our road to Damascus versus quiet, steady faith discussion, we've now kind of come full circle because we have this big story of Saul's conversion and all the controversy that was caused by him every place that he went to teach. Every place that he went to teach, people grouped up and decided they wanted to kill him, right? So you've got all that going on. And then you have this quiet story of Tabitha or Dorcas who seemed to live a life of quiet service and faith using her skills to find fulfillment and service to others. And, and because it notes in the story that she um, sewed things, that she made things for follow, the followers of Jesus, right? That was kind of her ministry, right? So we have this, this quiet ministry in this small little town of Joppa, and you have this big dramatic thing going on with Paul. And the point is that God will use whatever means of communication and circumstances and people that he chooses to bring about his purposes. So anytime we think that there is a pattern to how God is operating, that we know God's formula in his rules, whenever we start thinking that, we're heading down a, a wrong path because we will never understand God's ways this side of the veil. 
And so our call is not to have a formula and then look for things that fit within the formula, right? It's to look around in our days and our weeks and our years broadly and widely looking for where God is in all of that and then responding faithfully when we find him there. Okay, thank you. That's chapter 9, thoughts, questions, comments. Yes. Okay, go ahead, bring it. <laughs> mm-hmm. if, and if you go back to it, um, we have Elijah in the Old Testament who lays on the son who's died and brings him back to life. So <clears throat> I think, well, I think we have to grant that, first of all, it is still a rare occurrence. It's not like there's, he's standing at the front of a line and dead people are being brought to him and he's just bringing them back to life one after the other. You know, it's, it is kind of an uncommon healing, but it does happen, right? Um, And then I think, again, so you have Jesus who was healing folks in his own power, and you know, um, the whole Lazarus thing, you know, because Lazarus had been in that tomb for three days, and so that was the common belief that there was no way um, that anybody could have been misidentified as just um, unconscious and not dead, you know, that after three days, that on the fourth day, you knew that person was well and truly dead, right? And so the fact that Jesus brings someone back to life after that period of time is a significant thing as well, because it broke the understanding of what people believed. Um, And if you get that, they didn't have modern medicine like we did, right? So they probably made false death calls every once in a while, right? And, and what happened is people didn't die, right? And so they learned that there was kind of a window whereby you thought they were dead and then, oh, but yeah, they're actually really dead, right? Um, but I do think, I think resurrection was different in that, in that, in essence, I mean, we say, we say God brought Jesus back from the dead, and he did, but, but Jesus was God too, right? And so there's an interesting overplay there, whereas Jesus had been healing others, in this instance, God's healing himself. God's healing God's self. God's um, bringing God's self back to life in the, in the person of Jesus, who's fully human and fully divine, right? Um, and so that is, and the other thing is that he said that that would be a sign that all that he had taught them and said was true. And so that's just an affirmation for the years of teaching, one year or three years, depending on whether you follow the synoptics or you follow John, right? Um, He's been out there teaching that this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be persecuted, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I will rise. And so it's, all, it's not even just that he was resurrected, it's, it's that the resurrection affirms everything that he was teaching about God and, and who he was, you know, as he was saying himself. Okay, you're doing this. Is that not good? You want some more? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I would, I would say that he does claim being God with some of his words. Yes, and, and, and I believe in that. I mean, I do agree with that, with the Holy Spirit being sent. And again, sent to live within us in a way that was not the way we understood the Spirit to be with us in the Old Testament. And so that's a new thing, too. So the whole hundreds of years coming to this understanding of God as Trinitarian is all wrapped up in that, um, in, in that we know God is Holy Spirit, that Jesus told us he would send that advocate to be with us and to guide us into all truth. Um, and, and that that's part of our understanding of how God works. And I, I would say, I mean, I, I, I disagree. I do think that Jesus is fully man and fully God. 
Um, and, I, and I think it's a mystery and that, that we'll never be able to wrap our minds around, that it's something that we accept on faith. But I would say I, I experience, that we experience God as Trinitarian. We experience God most, um, that, that God is community in God's self, and we experience God's presence most when we're in community with other believers of God, that, there's, that, that it's, it's part of our DNA that we're not supposed to be doing this on our own, right? That that's part of the, of the, um, the essence of who God is. Um, but but so, so, yeah, so I think that that, I, and I think the resurrection was the way of saying um, you do have life. Because in, the early, in, in Judaism, there's not a concept of resurrection. And, and there are some aspects of Judaism today that embrace uh, resurrection, but mostly no. Mostly there's still not an understanding that there's resurrected life, that you have the life here, and this is the life that you have your relationship with God with. Um, and then after the uh, exile, we, we picked up ideas of resurrected life when we came back to Judah. And so um, that was something that was beginning to be talked about and thought about, but it's not until, until Jesus, not only with his bringing people back from the dead, but then with him being resurrected, that there's this kind of affirmation of, oh, resurrected life is a true thing, is a real thing, and that's something that we, as followers of Jesus and believers in God, will experience as well. It doesn't mean that our life here doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. Um, but it's not the full story, right? And, that, and that's, that, that was good news. That's good news to people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> that is so interesting. <clears throat> So, okay, so the question is the kind of the decisions that were made on what, how, what order to put this information in, in the stories, right? And that she's kind of saying it's kind of disjointed. Why would we even introduce Peter again at the end of 9 instead of just wait until 10 and starting new Peter stuff in 10 and kind of all of that? And so it goes back to the early church. So you have Jerome <clears throat> who, who, had, who did the first... Uh, translation um, approved by the church of all of it and when they did that they they decided their cuts on all of this stuff right and so they followed the pattern of Jewish scripture and the way that it was handled um, but when they start putting in verse numbers and chapter numbers that's really goes back to Jerome and and kind of the early and so it, it was it was done in the year 390, 400, you know, somewhere back around there, and, and, and we've just updated. Every, every revision since then has just been an update. And it's a way of, once we had a system where we numbered those verses, it's just a way of us always knowing that you're reading that portion of Scripture in that space, right? So some of y'all have probably gotten books before where the page numbers in the hardback were not the same as the page numbers in the paperback and you've got people with both copies that are trying to read through the story and talk about something and you're just not on the same page when you're talking about something because you're in different stuff that was kind of the understanding of, of getting scripture down in that form is that it would always stay so the whole thing with hey we went from Paul and then we went back to Peter and maybe we'll do you know someone else over here I will say what's what what we're setting up is we're setting up Peter's experience with Cornelius, which you're going to talk about next in 10 next week. And that experience sets up a showdown with the leadership in Jerusalem that you'll talk about the week after. So they're building towards this place where they had to group up and say, wait a minute, we've been telling everybody that if you're following Jesus, 
You need to kind of become a good Jew and do these things and then be a follower of Jesus. And at that meeting, that's where they start saying, uh-uh, you know, that, and Paul argues it too. He's like, our understanding now is that Jesus is saying you don't have to go through the Jewish gate to get to him anymore, that all people are open to him. So I don't know if that helps, but that's where they're heading now with the introduction of Peter, whether it be at the end of 9 or the beginning of 10. And then the other thing to know is that just like if you look at Luke, the, the Gospel of Luke starts um, hometown, Galilee, and then, it, and then it moves out, and then it moves out. That, that's kind of the, the place of influence of Jesus, keeps growing like this in Luke, right? He uses that same pattern in Acts of the Apostles. So it starts close to home in Jerusalem, and then it moves out to Samaria, and then it moves out from there. So there's this, this uh, geographic pattern that he's using with the stories to kind of reinforce the image of the gospel going out and spreading and spreading further and wider through the world. Do you still want to? Yeah. All right. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, but none is notorious as Saul, man. He was the big one. So that it was a major thing that he, I mean, hit the witness of someone who had been persecuting the church, who now came, not only that he had switched sides, but that he had all the knowledge and training in the Jewish faith to be able to use that as a way of explaining to people how Jesus was the fulfillment of that, right? So he was just a, a, a a powerful witness um, for the church and real it's just it's just hard to imagine where the church would have been if Paul had not had the experience that he did and not agreed to live into it because I think I think we also have experiences of God and we brush them aside right or we um, decide we're not going to go there not you know we we choose which way to walk in our life and I, I think we get invitations all the time and I think most of them are subtle and I do think somebody, so I mean, I'll tell y'all, I've had a really, I've had an, a very intense experience of God. I can tell y'all about it if you want, but that's one time, you know, and I've been really devoted, you know, moving my life in this direction, the direction that I think he is trying to um, be among his people in a way that witnesses to what I believe about him, you know, all of this, right? And I've had one really intense knowing that was God talking to me thing, right? Um, it doesn't mean I don't experience God in other ways, but not like that. I mean, that was the only time I had that. And I've got friends that are very envious because they've never had that. And they're like, I would like even just one of those. That would be great, right? Just to make me feel like, yes, it, it's true and it's real and he's really there and da-da-da. So, um, <clears throat> and, I, and I don't know why some of us have intense experiences and some of us don't. And I think some of us have experiences of God that we give credit as being experiences of God, and some of us have experiences of God, and we don't give credit as them being experiences of God. It's indigestion, it's I came to my senses, it's whatever, but it's not God that their thinking led them there, right? Um, and so I think we are all created in the image and likeness of God, and that we have, you know, God-shaped space in our hearts that is never full unless it's full of God, right? And so I think he's always reaching out to us, always inviting us, always wanting us to be closer to him, to have relationship with him. And we choose or don't choose to accept that. We set our, our lives up in ways that we hear those things easier or we don't hear those things easier because if we're busy and we have no margins in our lives and we've set ourselves 
on goals that are very worldly versus very spiritual. We just haven't built any space in our lives where we're going to hear that, right? Um, so there's lots of reasons why some of us hear it and are drawn and some of us aren't. And I think, you know, the strongest thing is that we, in our, in, in our faith that we've owned for ourselves, um, that that's just a really strong witness to other people, that the, um, the peace that we know, the, uh, and it doesn't mean that we're always peaceful, but that the generally peace that we know, the sense of being on a foundation of something that's bigger than us, the sense of kind of knowing that we belong to something bigger than us, I think that comes across to people who don't have that very attractively. I mean, people want that in their lives. Um, and so just living our lives faithfully, not standing on a street corner, not doing all that, just living our lives faithfully is just a great witness to people who don't have that. And we have to trust that if they're interested in it, God's going to take that ball and run with it. It's not, you know, so it's, it's, the, it's the parable of the sower. You toss seeds and you toss seeds and you toss seeds and only 25% of them are going to do something, right? That's, that's what the math was in that story. But, and, that, and that's all God. We don't know which seeds are going to, we just toss our seeds and let God take it from there. Yeah. I'm going to have to let y'all go, so real quick, yeah. <coughs> I agree. <coughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So the point is that those who are instruments of healing in people's lives, whether they're giving credit to God or not, that God is the source of all of that healing. Um, and I, I think, again, to me, that comes back to God giving us one to another to take care of each other, that that's part of how we live our witness as being God's people, is that we care for one another. And so they're living out their gifts, and you're living out your gifts, and other people are living out their gifts, and we're all um, doing those to the glory of God and to take, you know, to, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and to take care of one another. So. All right, guys, I got to let y'all go. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs>